Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We are joined by Sam Fazelli. Sam is, as we all know, Senior Pharmaceutical Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He also manages Bloomberg Intelligence for all of Europe. And as of today, he's adding a third hat as an opinion columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And he's got a really fascinating column out today talking about vaccines, when they could become available, specifically talking about President Trump and his contention that the U.S. could have a vaccine before Election Day. Sam, once again, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us your thoughts about the timing of a vaccine, and specifically about President Trump's contention that there could be a vaccine in the U.S. by Election Day. Hi, Paul. It's uh, very nice to talk to you again. So uh, basically, the, um, if, if we're looking at traditional vaccines, then you still have Pfizer, who, um, whose CEO continues to talk about the possibility of getting data as early as October. Uh, or end of October. So there is still that possibility uh, hanging around. But the majority of companies, if they follow the same path as Johnson & Johnson has done in their phase three, by not looking at efficacy data until half their patients have had at least two months after their last dose, or there was only one dose in the J&J trial, then there's no way Pfizer can read out. And Moderna, we already know they've said they won't read out. So it all depends what Pfizer does. It all depends what's going on with these conversations that happen between the White House and the CEO of Pfizer, uh, apparently. But there is another angle, which is what I looked at in my, um, in my piece that I wrote today, Paul. Well, do tell, uh, Sam. Yeah, and that is that the, um, there is another version of vaccines, so-called uh, passive vaccines, So not the usual ones that you and I think about, but somebody much cleverer than me put it very nicely and called it an an immune system in a bottle or immunity in a bottle. So it's already, it just loads you up with antibodies against the virus so that either if you've just been infected or you are at risk of an infection, you could be protected for several months or you could get a treatment out of it. Now we've had two companies, Regeneron and Lilly, report data And our contention is that there is a risk, and I use that word um, on purpose, that the FDA may give these so-called passive vaccines an approval before or in the next month. And if that happens, then, of course, uh, the White House can claim that they, they achieved what they were talking about. All right. So the difference between an active and a passive, just highlight that for us again, Sam. Yeah, sure. So you, you, you and I... Um, have had many vaccines in our lives. So the ones that you would normally know as active vaccines are the flu vaccine or polio vaccine or the measles vaccine, etc. So those are the ones that are injected into you and you'll 
teach your body to raise an immune response so that if you, get the, you see the virus, then you're already prepared to react to it. The passive vaccines give you the antibodies that a vaccine induces in you normally, an active vaccine. They just put that in a bottle and inject it into you. So it doesn't last as long as, a, um, as an active vaccination. As you know, you know I, I, I don't know, 50 years ago, I had my smallpox vaccine, right? <laughs> or whatever it was, BCG vaccine. So all of those, you know, there's no, these things don't last 50 years. But what they could do is give you two, years, two months protection. But in fact, Glaxo and Astro are working on things that give you six months protection. Um, so you can just keep going back every six months and get your, you know, top up. I mean, they're not cheap, but top up and keep yourself protected, potentially. So what's your hope, Sam? I mean, when are you anticipating being able to get a vaccine and, and walking around your neighbourhood? Oh, gosh, you're tantalising me there now. <laughs> I would love to, um, to, to believe that one of these vaccines, the active vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, uh, Novavax is looking quite interesting. Um, actually, have their vaccine ready by the end of this year and next year. I would hope that they're better than the minimum that the FDA has required, which is 50% uh, protection. And uh, frankly, even if it's 50%, uh, it reduces your risk of, of of disease or severe disease by 50%. I would still take it. Um, you, you spend a couple of days feeling pretty grotty. And then after that, you're protected for hopefully year, two years, three years, four years. I would like that. Sam, what do you know? What's going on in China? It's, you know, we see reports that uh, the Chinese pharmaceutical companies and the government are, are uh, having running tests of tens of thousands and injecting people with uh, some type of quote unquote vaccine. What's going on there? Do you know? Yeah, but well, we're doing that too, Paul. We've got um, if you add up all the numbers, sixty thousand for Johnson and Johnson, forty-four thousand for. Pfizer, you get up to over 200,000 people being injected with vaccines, or at least half of them anyway, mm-hmm. with vaccine um, in, in the trials. Now, so I don't know the detail of what's going on in China, but I, I don't think this is massive news in that they already started with the, um, with the military, apparently, and then, of course, the, the broader population slowly running out. At the end of the day, this, um, <clears throat> this vaccine that they're using, at least the one that I just read in the article that... Um, uh, we were referring to is one that's based on a an older technology. Nothing wrong with that, but it's an older technology, and um, we've seen some data for it. It does give you some protection, and um, they're just rolling it out. Some is there a danger that one country will get it and be you know covetous about it and keep it and and we we won't see it? Well, the the. Companies who are developing these have just all signed up. There was the news yesterday, uh, signed up to equitable and making these vaccines that they're developing, at least the Western companies, uh, available um, to low-income countries in an affordable way. So I don't think this will happen. The, The bigger question really is, would you in the United States be even have the possibility to get access to the Chinese vaccine? Or a Chinese individual in the country over there, would they ever have access to the Western vaccine? So I think what's going on here is that the, the countries who've got the technology are developing the vaccines uh, themselves. So if you look around, Germany, France, England, UK, US, China, Russia, they're all, they're all 
developing their vaccines and between them I'm sure there'll be enough to, to hang, hand around and which one's the most effective we've just no idea. Sam we're out of time but is there any newcomer on the scene you know is it entirely possible that one of these days you'll get an email from some company saying they've discovered some you know massive new thing? Um, well, th- not really. I mean, I, I, we are waiting for antivirals and, and therapies to continue to roll out. So we should mm-hmm. get some data on those. Novavax should have some d- n- new data in the next couple of weeks. That's our expectation. And there's a company in France that nobody talks about called Valneva that's developing a, a, a vaccine that's yes. similar to um, the older technology. Valneva. So, we certainly will Valneva. keep an eye on all of those. Sam Fazelli, Head of EMEA Research and Senior Pharmaceutical Analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence. Time now to talk cars. A great story on the Bloomberg today discussing whether you should buy a COVID car. It's been notoriously difficult to rent cars. Pricing has gone up as people in big cities try to get out, even if it's just for the weekend, the ones that have had to stay behind. And then overall, auto sales have pretty much held up. So let's bring in someone who can give us some more detail about all of this. Jessica Caldwell is Executive Director of Insights at Edmunds.com. Jessica, Q3 auto sales maybe were not as quite as strong as anticipated, but they're still holding in there. There's like 50 million sales in the quarter. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is where quarterly sales probably hurt the the knowledge of seeing what's actually going on in the industry. Because if you look month to month throughout the third quarter, you would see an improvement. September sales, especially in terms of retail, the average consumer buying cars was actually quite strong. So I think that that can definitely give us some optimism in this market. And I would say overall, the American consumer is holding up the auto market. It is the what we call fleet sales. So that's the budget, the Hertz, the, you know, the commercial, the business fleet um, folks that are, are, you know, are not buying as many cars. So I think that really speaks strongly for consumer confidence that people are willing to make these big purchases. So, Jessica, I have a good buddy of mine who manages a dealership here uh, in New Jersey, and, and he tells me, and he's been telling me this for a couple of months now, the big issue is inventory. They just can't get enough cars on the lot to sell. What's the status of the inventory in this country? Yeah, I think that has been a really interesting thing. I mean, who would have thought that in the beginning of March when the pandemic started that we would be having this conversation? I mean, I think what happened was, of course, factories across the U.S., they shut down, it's on average, about six weeks during the pandemic. And at that time, no cars were being built. And, uh, you know, at the same time, people were still buying cars. I mean, not as many during that time period, but people were still. And that's, that's a really long time for a factory. And if we think back to last year, um, General Motors in particular had issues with, uh, with labor strikes. So they had that at the end of 2019 and then going into 2020 with the pandemic, um, you know, I think that they've been particularly hard hit with with, with inventory issues because of it. Um, so I think that automakers have been really trying to to figure this out to to try to increase uh, production where they can. Of course, this is, doesn't apply to everyone in every factory, but particularly for things like pickup trucks, which have done really well. Um, you know, trying to eke more out of those is is, is of course a, a goal for the auto companies, particularly as they they are you know they provide a lot of profitability for them. So we know that numbers for sales were pretty strong and inventory is a little bit hard to come by, perhaps. But what about pricing and what about financing? So 
are dealers willing to finance more? Are they getting a break from the, the people that are supplying them, from the car makers and so on? Because we know that, you know, with the exception of the stock market, a lot of people are out of work, they're furloughed, they're digging into their savings and, you know, it may not be the right time for them to buy a big purchase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that what, we, what we're seeing in terms of pricing, in terms of co- consumer composition, that the people that are buying cars, particularly new cars, are people that are definitely more financially secure through the pandemic. They're not necessarily as worried about being laid off or being furloughed or taking pay cuts, or even if they take a pay cut, it's still you know enough to buy a car. Because you can tell that transaction prices are going up. We're seeing things like higher down payments, um, lower interest rates. Of course, that's a big driver. And I think that that's helped a lot of consumers uh, buy cars because not only is the interest rate low, you also have the automaker subsidized incentives, which make the interest rates even lower. So I think that that is encouraging people to buy, especially when you think of some of these loan terms out there. It's not unusual to see now 72, 84 months. And if you're getting you know, something close to 0%, that, you know, that kind of makes that $40,000 new vehicle worth it. How about the used car market, Jessica? How's that faring right now? Yeah, the used car market is pretty much going like gangbusters. Um, they, I mean, we're really seeing unprecedented things in that, in, in the sense that pricing for, you know, let's say a three-year-old vehicle is, has actually gone up over the summer. And that, I mean, that never happens. I mean, you think about a used car, Every month it ages, you you know, the price should go down. It's older, more miles, more wear and tear. But we're seeing the opposite. Um, and we have through the summer um, because there's been just so much demand. I think people are, you know, p- folks that maybe would have bought a new car in pre-pandemic times want to be a bit more financially conservative, are thinking maybe I should go to the used car market. You have perhaps some people that are uncomfortable taking public transportation and think I just want something that's not too expensive, just some basic transportation to get me around, okay, let me go into the used market. So as a result, uh, dealers essentially cannot get enough used cars. I mean, we'll start to see prices decline as, as the calendar year ends and the, and the cars officially age. But, I, I mean, the market has been incredibly strong the past few months. So we were at 15.2 at the last reading million on an annualized basis. Uh, how long for can that continue? Do you see a, you know, a, a beyond 15 million number for the rest of the year? Yeah, I mean, it's possible. I mean, I think 15 million for this year is, is, you know, still requires a, you know, a strong close. And I think some of the worries about as it's getting colder, will there be another, um, you know, another round of lockdowns as related to the pandemic? How will the election affect consumer confidence and and just sales in general? So I think that that is, um, you know, definitely a concern. But, you know, if we look through what we have seen, um, you know, consumers have largely held up auto sales. So I think that them being the largest part of uh, you know, of the of the mix, um, I think that really speaks strongly as we head into next year. And, you know, perhaps people are, you know, doing right. a bit better financially. Jessica Caldwell, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Jessica Caldwell, Executive Director of Insights for Edmunds.com, giving us her thoughts on the auto industry. Again, uh, stronger than expected. Some of the uh, expectations at the beginning of the pandemic that it would be disastrous for the industry turned out to be not so. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So the jobless claims that we saw this morning came in slightly better than forecast, although stubbornly high. And what we're starting to see really over the last several days is some big blue chip companies ranging from the airlines to the Walt Disney Company to financial services companies announced some significant layoffs. Shanali Basak, Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us to talk about some of those financial institutions. So Shanali, we're seeing the likes, the likes of J.P. Morgan Goldman Sachs, uh, some international banks. Talk about some reinstating some furloughs and layoffs. What do you have for us? Yeah, we, we've been talking about this for a while. We knew it was coming, and now we know what the scale looks like, and now we know where the cuts are really coming from. At a bank like Goldman, you're seeing a lot of these cuts. It's only 1% of the workforce, but it's, about, it's still hundreds of jobs. It's a lot of back office jobs. Uh, but then when you look at J.P. Morgan, there's some job cuts at the consumer unit as well as other lines of businesses. So this um, this sweep is not discriminating. Uh, the other issue I would say, Paul, is if you are a contractor for a bank, if you're a service provider for a bank, you should be a little concerned right now too. Shanali, you know, banks lay off a certain small percentage every year. It's churn, it's the people who come in post-internships who maybe don't make the cut and so on. How is this year different and, and timing-wise? Is this when banks normally do it? Yeah, this, this is when you would see them. But remember, a lot of this, and make no mistake, a lot of this is pandemic-driven, partially because people believe, and you saw this in Allstate, which is cutting almost 4,000, 3,800 jobs, right? Uh, a lot of this is because the economy is not necessarily improving to the point that can justify keeping so much staff on payroll. So, I mean, let's let's be very clear that some of this is because of the pan- a lot of this is because of the pandemic. But also remember, the banks are looking around and saying, OK, they started cutting jobs last year when times are very good in anticipation of a rainy day. The rainy day is now here. We don't know how long that will last. A lot of the businesses that are making them do very well, we also don't know how long that will, uh, those tailwinds will last. And so they really need to be cutting where they can. They want to be improving their returns for shareholders, which will be pretty discriminating. And they, they just want to be prepared to be competitive for the year ahead, especially when so much of their staff um, can be found out they can do their work in a way that's more automated and in lower cost locations like Texas and Florida or the suburbs rather than the highest um, cost cities in the world. That's interesting, Shanali. I guess a lot of industries and a lot of companies, I think you know, what we're hearing from them is they are really rethinking the scale of their workforce, the location of their workforce, uh, the deployability of their workforce. Is there that kind of discussion going on in financial services that maybe I don't need all the numbers I thought I needed before, perhaps with technology, perhaps with uh, automation, you know, there can be a significant reduction in the permanent uh, jobs within financial services. Yes, absolutely. You know, one business that has taken a long time to automate 
and now people are looking to, you know, maybe this can move a little faster. It's been happening for a while, but, you know, discussions are definitely elevated. Uh, Places like fixed income trading, where automation has not really taken hold in the same way as other parts of financial services, that's a place, for example, that we can look for much more automation in the coming years. And then at least the question of what does that mean for jobs? There's that famous example at Goldman where a 500-person trading unit was cut down to three people because uh, of the effects of automation. They just didn't need that many people anymore. So we're seeing that in other parts of high-touch businesses. Then there's also the consumer business that, you know, in the coming years, you'll have a lot of questions about because this pandemic has shown that consumers want to bank online. They're not going to the branches like they used to be going to the branches. These firms used to have major branch networks employing many thousands of people across the entirety of the United States. So do they need those anymore? For now, they're saying they like to have a physical footprint, but let's see if they hold true to that given this acceleration of digital banking. We heard from JP Morgan that it's eliminating more than 100 jobs in an annual cut, which obviously is not as many as Goldman Sachs. But those who took funds improperly and, you know, of 500 people that were investigated, at least a few took it, took them improperly. You would wonder why any, any you know, pandemic funds would be necessary for a JP Morgan employee. But, you know, are, are they going to be among the fired? You know... There's cost cuts for the purposes of cutting people in the consumer bank that need to be cut, but there's also cost cuts happening. I mean, yeah, that that is a one-off situation and super unfortunate. There's no other way to put that, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, those are... Those are firings for misconduct, right? Those are not firings for... But, you know, it goes to show, you know, uh, the the banks really don't have room right now to uh, allow employees to misbehave in any fashion, whether that's taking PPC funds or whether that's, at this point, any sort of racial discrimination or anything else. Um, when when Morgan Stanley set out this at the beginning of the year and put their moratorium on job cuts that at, that will last to the end of this year, which was what their promise was. So that's another bank, by the way, we can look to in the beginning of next year. They made it very clear that, um, you know, bad behavior was the clear exception to that rule. And, you know, the banks are really trying to come out as the good guys in this crisis. So there's really a zero tolerance um, policy for this kind of behavior. Shanali, thank you as always for your perspective. That particular program that was tapped at JP Morgan, the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, and it set off a hasty probe, the full effect of which hasn't been previously reported. Do check out Michelle Davis's story on the Bloomberg for that one. And thanks again to Shanali Basak. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more. Now joined by Lauren Simmons, entrepreneur and youngest ever female trader on the New York Stock Exchange. She has a uh, a new uh, series coming up. Going public will follow a diverse cast of entrepreneurs as they strive to win over investors, make deals, and hit the ultimate goal for startup listing on the Nasdaq. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us here. Tell us about the work you're doing now and your upcoming project. 
Yeah, so I'm so excited to be the host of Going Public, and essentially I'm here to educate and empower the next generation in finance and inspire the new generation of retail investors the the right way. Going public is, you know, groundbreaking in the sense that we are following five founders that are taking their companies public at the NASDAQ. Um, this isn't a competition show. Each uh, company is standalone of each other, um, but this is the, the, ultimate, the ultimate goal. How are you finding candidates, Lauren, and how are you examining them and sifting through them? Yeah, so part of um, going public, we have Roth Capital, which is the investment banking firm that is part of it, and they are vetting everyone um, that is part of the process. We are still openly casting, um, and we are looking for companies that have high-growth consumer products with a minimum of $10 million in revenue, um, and they Roth Capital is vetting everyone that's coming onto the, the TV series. So this is a streaming show, and I, I see here that um, viewers will be able to invest real money in some of these companies? Yes, in real time. So a lot of the series we are filming from now until about March, and the episodes where we are actually being listed at the NASDAQ, people will be able to participate in the IPO. And that this is all happening through Reg A. Um, Reg A is a securities exemption that was part of the 2012 Jobs Act. The Jobs Act was passed um, into law by uh, President Obama. And it essentially, the Jobs Act was designed to provide easier access to capital for smaller companies and allow everyday Americans to invest in them. This is really empowering people to be part of the IPOs, which, as we know, this season is, is hot commodity IPOs opening left and right everywhere. So, Lauren, I remember at the time there was just a little bit of trepidation about this uh, because perhaps some of those who might want to take advantage of, you know, what looks to be a great opportunity might not fully understand the risks involved. How will you present the risks for each individual company, whether it's chosen or not, to the public as host of this streaming program? Yeah, so because, you know, going public is phenomenal and how we're following this series, I will, you know, in a, a non-biased way, will be able to explain what is going on on the road shows, what their financials look like. Is this, you know, a company that will withstand the test of time? And so I'm breaking that down. But again, I'm not giving answers that will skew people left or right. It's just very fact-based. And from there, people will take the information that I give them and hopefully make the best decisions for themselves. Obviously, IPO investing can be lucrative. You could be on the ground floor of the next Amazon, but you really want to take in everything that is going on behind the scenes and looking at the, the financials and looking at all, you know, moving, moving parts to be able to make the best educated decisions kind of to move forward. So, Lauren, this pandemic has upset uh, businesses across the board, across the globe. Uh, it's really upset business plans uh, for a lot of companies. Uh, I would suspect that uh, it's really uh, disrupted kind of some of the, the, new, the new issue market, entrepreneurs trying to get business plans off the ground. How has the pandemic impacted kind of this side of the business that you're now looking at? You know what? I want to say that they've still been moving forward quite ahead. I mean, these are companies, yes, that, that typically have been around and 
Um, they're raised in the capital. I think they're doing fine. Obviously, we are in a time, especially going into quarter four, where we are seeing a lot of people trying to list. Um, and I think that has everything to do with the election and just how the markets are going in general. And so I think that there is a big push, especially for right now, seeing companies, you know, debut before whatever happens with the election. I think going forward, um, especially when we're talking about the small cap space, we are going to see more people, you know, having, I think, going through the Reg A plus route and and doing it from a small cap perspective, because, a lot of, you know, businesses, I feel, fall into that tier, and they are very representative of um, Americans and, and how most businesses are, are kind of run. Lauren, we're almost out of time, but we were set to see this in 2021. Given COVID, will we still see this? Do you have any kind of release date for us? Yes, absolutely. So we are definitely thinking spring 2021. Nothing has been pushed back. We have already started uh, filming. I was just out in LA about three weeks ago. So I'm so excited for everyone to see. Please watch on entrepreneur.com. Um, they already have 14 million uh, viewers ships through their medium platform. And, and I'm, I'm so excited for you guys to see spring of next year. Well, congratulations. Another first for Lauren Simmons, who is bringing out a streaming service called Going Public, as you heard in the spring of 2021. You can see it on entrepreneur.com. A diverse cast of entrepreneurs striving to win over investors and hit that ultimate goal listing on the NASDAQ. That's Lauren Simmons, personal finance speaker, author, producer. And of course, she was at Rosenblatt Securities at 22, the youngest female trader ever to work on the NYSC and the second black woman to hold the equity trader spot in the history of the New York Stock Exchange. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.